Welcome to the Active Listening Podcast. I'm your host, Arianna, and I have the great pleasure of unearthing the stories and thoughts of others. Today's guest is Dr. Rachel Coward. Rachel is a psychologist studying the science of games, research director for Take This, a nonprofit providing mental health awareness, and the founder of Your Own Castle. She works to debunk many of the myths surrounding games, especially video games. Rachel is a mom of three living in Ottawa, Ontario. In this episode, we deep dive into all the stereotypes, misconceptions, and questions that today's online world represents. Rachel addresses the fear-mongering that runs wild among parents, toxicity among players, especially for females, and she sheds light on many of the myths we've accepted as truth. There's more than meets the eye when it comes to video gaming. There's so much we don't understand, and for many of us, we've allowed fear to define our decisions in the realm of online gaming and screen time. Our society and culture is moving forward, and if this year has taught us anything, it's that the online world is our future. We don't need to be afraid of it, but we can be well-informed and learn to use it in ways that are helpful and enhance our lives. Perhaps you've never thought about how negative messaging about video gaming is impacting your world, and that makes you feel a little uncomfortable. That's okay. Let's sit with the discomfort and allow it to change us. Maybe it will provide greater insight or the words to say when you are in tough conversations with others. My desire is that these conversations will help to share perspectives and stories of others while encouraging you to think for yourself. May we see each other as complete humans, regardless of differences, and while we're at it, may we continue to love well. So join me as we chat about video games. They aren't all bad. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Ariana, and today I am thrilled to be able to sit down with Dr. Rachel Coart. Welcome, Rachel. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, so for those who don't know who you are, you are a psychologist studying the science of games, research director for Take This, a nonprofit providing mental health awareness, the founder of your own castle, and you currently live in Ottawa with your family. Plus, you are an avid video gamer. Does that about sum it up? <laughs> that, is, that is a perfect summation. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you have a lot of things that you do, and it is very exciting. Um, yeah. So what first got you interested in psychology and specifically the study of games? You know, I always wanted to do psychology. I was always really interested in understanding why people think the way they think and why people behave the way they behave. And with psychology, you really have to have an advanced degree to, to really do much in it. So I knew I had to go to graduate school. And when I went to get my master's, I was studying to become uh, a therapist. And I knew immediately I did not want to do that, <laughs> yeah. which is a little frightening when you move across the country to, to start a new program. Um, but I knew that the program was going to be worthwhile and it was going to make me a better researcher. I knew I wanted a research career right away as soon as I began that. But during my master's program, since it was a therapy training, I was doing therapy and I continued to see per parents coming in with concerns about their children playing games. So this was 2008. So World of Warcraft was very popular. It was like the peak popularity of this game. Yep. Um, and they kept saying, I'm really concerned that it's doing long-term social damage because I see them alone in a room for hours. And full disclosure, I was playing so much World of Warcraft at the time. <laughs> so I started to get legitimately concerned, like, am I damaging myself? Like, what's happening here? Um, but at the time, there was little to know. It wasn't a field of, of research, game studies. There was maybe two or three papers at all. So that's when I decided to take 
my lifelong love of video games. And also I wanted to be able to provide this information for parents because there was such a concern and there was nothing out there. So yeah, I melded the two together. That's so awesome. I feel like in another lifetime, I would have done something with psychology because I love the study of all of that and understanding how people think. That's cool. And now you've joined it with video games, which is awesome and not something that you would typically think to put together with that, but that's like what our world is right now. So it makes sense. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. Especially this year. This year yeah. is everything's online. More about that question later. <laughs> um, but I would like to know what were some of your favorite games growing up? And now what are your favorite games now? Oh, it's it's hard to pick favorites, but you know what? I have an older brother, so I was always Luigi. Uh, yep. I was always player number two. So, you know, <laughs> classic Mario. I remember getting a Nintendo. I think I was six when we got the first Nintendo. So I played a lot of like Mario, Mario World. Mm -hmm. um, same. I've always been a fan. Same? Oh, yep. kindred spirit. Oh, yes. Um, I've always been a fan of role-playing games. That's really kind of been my jam. Like the, the games that take a hundred hours to play and they have big grand stories. Oh yeah. Of good versus evil. So like the final fantasies and the legend of Zelda's and those sorts of oh, things. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. You too? Yeah. Um, for some of them, I really enjoyed Breath of the Wild. That one was a really fun one mm -hmm. for me. Beautiful. That one was beautiful. And the whole open world. That yes. was fun. I hadn't really experienced one like that before. Um, but I grew up loving all the Super Mario and all of that kind of stuff. And I remember spending hours just huddled around the computer with my brothers and spending yep. time like that. But I really enjoy the immersive, like, story and the really beautiful artwork. Those are my mm -hmm. kind of games. Um, yeah, right sure. now I'm really enjoying the game Hades. Oh, yes. It won Game of the Year <laughs> somewhere I just saw. I think, yeah, yeah for the indie game or something like that. Yeah, maybe that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. So that one very I'm really cool. enjoying. That and Spirit Fair, but those are very story-based, artwork-based games. Yeah. Those yeah, are my jam. Beautiful. Yeah. We're 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 on the same wavelength here. Yeah. <laughs> Which is <laughs> great. Um, okay, so I really want to jump in and hear about what you do and the studying that you do, especially around the stereotypes and assumptions that there are around games. Because that's what this is all about. So how does the terminology and the way that we talk about it affect the way that people relate to games and those who play games? And what are some of the most blatant misconceptions out there that people just assume are real and true? Yeah, great question. Uh, the stereotype of gamers is actually where I began my PhD research because as someone who played games, I was seeing the stereotype come in popular culture and I was like, well, that doesn't look like me and that doesn't sound like me and, and how accurate really are these stereotypes? And I've done actually a series of, of three studies looking at the validity of the stereotype itself. Are gamers unpopular? Are they overweight? Are they socially inept? Um, do they exercise less? than people who don't play games? Are they less capable of communicating than people who don't play games? And it turns out none of it holds up when mm. you compare. So when you look at people who play online games, who are typically viewed more negatively, and you compare them to people who only play offline games, and you compare them to people who don't play games at all, there are no significant differences across any of these categories of attractiveness and unpopularity and social ability. Which was really enlightening. Yeah. <laughs> because if you see the stereotype of, you know, the basement dweller, mm -hmm. you know, and there's also this idea it's a teenager thing and the average gamer is in their mid thirties. Yeah. Right. So none of that seems to hold weight. Um, 
In terms of the misconceptions, there's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, starting, I guess, with the stereotype that all oh, gamers are teenagers and they're overweight and they have no social skills and they have no friends. Like, none of that is true. Um, but there's a lot of concern and misconception around the effects of games generally. Like, how do violent games affect people? Mm-hmm. Or how do online games affect people socially? And I think there's a lot of fear and misconception and moral panic. Um just across the board when it comes to the general impact that media can have. Because generally, broad strokes, the impact of media is so little on our thoughts and our behaviors. And in terms of long-term impact, yes, it can affect like stereotypes and perceptions, but in terms of it affecting our behavior and our cognitive abilities, uh, minimal, if, if anything. Um, so I think that's that's a big point to make. Which is so interesting because a lot of people that I talk to or a lot of things that I read, it's like it what makes you who you are is how much time mm-hmm. that you're spending on these things. And it's like, I feel like there's a lot more to us than this. And so, But we make <laughs> it seem like this is make or break, which is crazy. For sure. I mean, even if you think about the effects mm-hmm. of violent video games, for instance, which is always, you know, number one question. If you look at the research, it's gotten more research than any other area of game studies, I would say. Thousands of studies literally looking into it. There is no link between playing violent video games and violent behavior. There are a handful of studies that have found links between playing violent video games and showing an increase in aggression 15 minutes after. Okay. But what that means is in a laboratory setting, they brought someone in. They had them do something like a word completion task where they say... K-I blank blank, and they put K-I-S-S, they put KISS. They play 15 minutes of a violent game. They give them the same task afterwards, and instead of KISS, they write KILL, and that's considered an increase in aggression. And I'm not elaborating. That's literally the study. So what does that mean for real-life behavior? Is that actually an increase of aggression, or is that just word association? Right. Is it just priming? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Because that was something that I was really curious to know is – is this actually a thing? Because there's a lot of fear mongering around that and violent video games are going to turn people into terrorists and stuff like that. And it's like, yeah, really? We're putting a lot of stock into these video games. Yeah, no. I mean, especially like I was saying, there's so much work in this area. We can very definitively say there are not there are not direct links between playing violent video games and violent rural behavior. And if you look at other things like previous exposure to violence and peer delinquency and frustration tolerance, all of these things have been very well established in the scientific literature as contributing to real world violence. But people like the moral panic because it's an easy solution to a complex problem. Now I understand why on face value you might see the connection because it, you are emulating a behavior through a controller, I can see how people would make that connection. Um, but we're really very good at differentiating between what's real and what's not. Mm-hmm. Like if you watch any war movie, mm-hmm. the emotions that are evoked are completely different than the emotions that would be evoked if you were on a battlefield. Right. It's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And do you find that playing these types of video games would actually help to perhaps lower stress levels or like is some sort of release for people to get frustration out to play these kind of games? 
For some, yes, it can be very, I'll use a Freudian term, it can be very cathartic um, for some people to get out their frustration this way. And also games, generally speaking, are good stress relievers because they're playful and play is associated with the release of endorphins and it's associated with a reduction in stress. So it doesn't even necessarily have to be a violent game to have the effects of effective stress. Right. Because I I totally get that because half the time, most nights, I want to do something like that and play a game which is chill and not stressful. Exactly. And yeah. Totally. But it and it, it can relax yeah. you and it, and it's it's really important that, and I love that you play games <laughs> because a lot of people think it's only important play is only important for children which cannot be further from the truth. Play is so important for adults too. Yeah. And I think it's actually been really helpful for my marriage too that I play games as well as my husband. So I understand him a little bit. I understand his world. I even play some of the games that he plays, like mm-hmm. TFT with League of Legends and things like that. Mm-hmm. Like I understand the terminology and the world that he's in. I understand if he has to spend some time finishing his rounds, like I get it. So right. I don't nearly get quite as frustrated. And that's actually something that I want to ask you about too is yes, how do we – balance that how do we work together as couples with significant others who enjoy video games Mm -hmm. if one really loves it and it's a form of connection and stress relief for them and the other doesn't understand Mm -hmm. that world at all how do we show people that this is actually something that is helpful yes you do exactly what you're doing yeah you show an interest in it i mean really I, i was talking to a group of parents yesterday and I said, you know, I understand not everyone wants to play games, right? This is this is just as relevant if it was your significant other. If you don't want to play games, that's totally fine. But if you just look over their shoulder and ask them, like, why do you like it and what's happening here? Because it's important to know that a Fortnite match takes 40 minutes, mm-hmm. right? right? It's important to know that. So when your significant other says one more match, you don't get angry after 15 minutes have passed yep. because you think it should be over. Um, so just like with any other leisure activity. If your husband or partner or whatever really liked golf, you would probably ask a few questions about it and learn, you know, a thing or two about golf. Um, it's the same thing, but games, you know, games are everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> you can't get away from it. If your spouse isn't playing them now, your, your friends are your future children or your future children's friends, or, yeah. you know, it's, it's really a cultural competence of the 21st century. Yeah. And I wonder too if our understanding of video games and having a little bit more grace for that as millennials, I'll use that buzzword. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> we have a little bit more capacity for game playing because we do it ourselves. Like, I feel like so mm-hmm. many of us play games, so we understand. So yeah. We're a little bit more gracious with our kids. But I wonder if we would fall into more of a trap of wanting to make sure that our kids are well adjusted and kind and things like that. And we kind of unconsciously take in the lies that somehow all these games that we're playing are maybe not helpful, Mm -hmm. but, but we still want to do it. (laughs) Yeah. The games are helpful though. Let me tell you the games. um, If you look at the study of games and, and the effects of games as a whole. So we've been studying them for maybe 20 years or so now, generally speaking, the effects are more positive than negative. And at the very least they're neutral. So in terms of how they're going to impact our behavior, um, they're not going to make us violent. They're not going to reduce our, our compassion for other people or desensitize us to violence. They're not going to atrophy our social skills. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of potential 
for social connection, for playing and, and communicating, like I said, with a cultural competency, like your kids playing with other kids is also providing them with this shared experience that they can then take into school and talk about, oh, I played Hades this weekend. Oh, me too. Oh, what happened? You know, it, it's part of our common vernacular. And I yeah. think it's really important to understand that there is especially social value, especially over the last year, yeah. as games are literally the last thing we can do that's playful, social, and interactive six feet away from each other. Yes. Yeah. Can you share a little bit more about that aspect of it, of of it actually being a social connection, a way of actually having community? Because that's something yes. that people have asked a lot too is, is it actually a healthy way to have community? Oh, absolutely. So I think that the rules kind of differ based on the age of your children. So I know you and I both have young children. So my daughter is six and she loves Minecraft. So we have a Minecraft realm that's her and her two neighborhood friends who she cannot want to play with because we're in, we're in lockdown. So for her, the only way she can still play with them is to connect through this Minecraft realm and build and be cooperative or be competitive. And these are the things that you can't have from a Zoom conversation. You can't immerse yourself into a world where you're like, let's collaborate and build or or work together to kill a dragon. Um, And these kinds of experiences are really important because we have them in organized sports or we have them in drama club, which none of these things are happening now. So now we have them in Minecraft. Yeah. For older children, again, social community is still important, but I understand like as adolescents become older, you have to loosen the the strings a little bit in terms of letting them a bit more into the wild of the online world. And those are different considerations. Stranger Mm -hmm. danger is a consideration. Toxic harassment and, and that sort of thing is also a consideration to be aware of. But gaming communities can be fantastic places. There's a statistic that something like 65% of, of people who play games say their online friends are as good or better than their real world friends. And by that, they mean they can share things with them. They can self-disclose to them. They can feel a sense of connection with them. And that's really important. Yeah. You mentioned their toxic uh, harassment and toxic relationship stuff mm-hmm. there. Um, I'd like to talk more about that, yes. too, because that's something that is a little bit uh, unfortunate with the online world and especially for uh, females in the online gaming communities. Um, Mm -hmm. So how do we handle that? What do we do about that? Because yeah, like even, I mean, guys alone get a bad rap for being gamers, but then there's girls who also enjoy gaming and then they want to be a part of these communities and it's not a safe place for them. So what do we do about that? Yeah, it's it's hard. You know, you read in in the research about how lots of female players don't use voice chat, for instance, because they know that that's inviting some kind of harassment. Um, There's a few things to note here. One is to be aware that it happens. So for instance, if you have children, uh, male or female to talk with them about, you may see this and you may experience this and this is not okay. And because people feel that there are no repercussions on the internet, they feel more inclined to behave in ways they wouldn't behave uh, face to face. I always say report it. There's always reporting tools in the game or on the console. And secondly, if we want to do a research-based, um, evidence-based solution, which is kind of where <laughs> I always kind of lead down towards, they found that the best way to reduce the behavior in the game is to have a third-party ally 
standing up for you. So it's really like the see something, say something. If, if I'm being harassed by some, by a, a male and another male, so someone of a similar social status, they say, says, yeah. Hey man, that's not cool. That's actually the most effective way okay. um, to stop the behavior from happening. So if you have a son or a daughter, you let them know um, it's not okay. Don't act that way on the internet. If you wouldn't act that way in real life, you shouldn't act that way in real life either. Um, report it and and be an active ally. Don't just walk past if you see it happening. Mm-hmm. Those are really good points and something that um, I want my daughter to be aware of when she's playing games too because she loves mm-hmm. games just like her parents and yeah. we want her to be safe online because um, that's what our world is right now. Exactly. Exactly. I have a daughter too, so I understand. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Do you feel like because there is the stigma that you can't actually make a living from playing video games, um, that it's hard for people to actually want to do stuff with that? Because it's like, this is something that I love, but how can I actually do anything with this? And I have to do something that's a real job. Mm-hmm. So what do we do with that? Where do we place that? Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't even know. Um, well, there's game, there's jobs in the video gaming industry, right? So you can uh, get a career in creating games, which playing games gives you, you know, some experience, at least of the playtesting side of games. There's also been a trend recently for actually using your gaming experience on your resume. So like IBM has famously put out an advert being like, do you lead raids in, in MMO RPGs? That's developing leadership skills. Tell us about it. Tell us how you led these groups of diverse people through something complicated to success. So there are some transferable skills um, that you can get from gaming and take into the real world. And also, I think it's like 25, don't quote me on that, more than two dozen universities offer esports scholarships now. Oh, so, wow. There's that too. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, esports are really taking off now. And oh, this year has been a great year for esports because that's the one sport that you can <laughs> really do still. <laughs> Honestly, I'm surprised. Um, You and I are both in the Great White North. We are both in Canada. And I have been seeing that they're still playing organized football um, south of the border, which is shocking to me because (laughs) when COVID quarantine started, I I did a couple interviews saying like, this is the year for esports because surely all of the organized sports will be canceled. Um, They weren't all canceled, but esports is still thriving. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. I've heard the term before, slow media, um, okay. in regards to like games that require you to think and process through your decisions mm. or even watching things like YouTube videos about crafting or Lego building or like things like that versus just watching shows or watching TV, watching movies. Mm. Um, have you heard this used much in your Uh, circles or in your research and how would that be more beneficial or less Mm. or is it the same kind of retaining of screen time that we are told is so bad (laughs) 
you know, the ominous uh, screen time catch-all term yeah. that, that we see. I haven't actually heard that term, um, but I, I will speak to the uh, the nebulous screen time term Um and the research field, that's, we don't like that <laughs> because not all screen time is created equal. And, you know, everyone wants to stick a number. Everyone wants a magic number. How much screen time should my child have? And the American Pediatric Society, I think, says two hours. Is that two hours of Skyping with grandma? Is that two hours of watching YouTube? Is that count as the four hours of virtual school my child now has every day? Yeah. So for me, it's not about a magic number. It's about balance. So our screen shouldn't be every activity that your child does during the day. Obviously, my child has more screen time now because they have online school. That doesn't mean they don't ever play Minecraft now. They still also play Minecraft, and that's also looking at a screen. But we also do crafting, or we also go for a walk outside. Mm -hmm. And it's just about having a balance. I don't think there's a magic number. I think everyone knows their child much better than I know their child, and they know how much is too much for them. They should be moving their body. They should be hydrating. They should be doing multiple things. But, you know, if they also really like Lego videos, I have a three-year-old son, loves the Lego videos. We watch a lot of Lego videos. <laughs> so does my daughter. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> so many. She's like, Mom, can I watch my shows? And then she just watches Lego videos. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Like, okay, great. <laughs> but then she I actually has a huge pile of Lego that she'll, then she'll go and build with, which is See? great. Which is great because she's inspired. You know, my daughter watches a lot of um, playthrough videos, uh, Minecraft people building wild things in Minecraft. Right. And then she goes and she tries to recreate it. That's awesome. Yep. Yeah. It's inspiring for them. Yeah. Especially when you're like, I don't even know where to begin with half of these things. I mean, I watch tutorials, so then why can't my kid watch tutorials? <laughs> right? Right? I mean, I love a good stream on Twitch as much as the next person. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I think something that I try to be aware of, too, in regards to the whole nebulous screen time mm -hmm. is the feeling of parent shaming that can sometimes come with it or even mm -hmm. just shaming for whoever is on screens or playing their games and spending mm -hmm. a lot of time doing that. And it's like, oh, well, my kid just automatically regulates himself and just puts mm -hmm. it away. I was like, my kid would never do that. They, She yeah. would stay on all the day long, basically, yeah. until she was to be like, I'm hungry. <laughs> right. And so, yeah. Yeah. So I just... I want people to also know that it's okay either way. And that's what you're saying too, is you know your kid best and there's yeah. not some formula and some standard that is right. And Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And generally speaking, kids are not good at self-regulating themselves, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes if my daughter gets bored, fine, she'll turn it off and she'll go do something else. But if she's playing Minecraft, forget it. She's there until until I tell her um, to get off. And and what I like to tell parents is be aware that even through young adulthood, your ability to self-regulate time is not great. And it's magnified by the fact that games are meant to be immersive experiences and they put you in what we call a state of flow. So the challenge of the game meets the skill of the player. And when, when you have that balance in a well-designed game, that's what you, that's what happens when you play the Sims for an hour and you look up and five hours went by. Yeah. That's the sense of flow. You lose the sense of time and space. It's just the phenomenon. So if you tell your child, 
you can play for an hour, they're not going to know when an hour is mm-hmm. up. They they, yeah. they actually are incapable of knowing. So put a clock where they can see it. Set an egg timer. Remind them 10 minutes, 5 minutes, 2 minutes um, versus just saying an hour is up and, and taking it away because they're just not capable of, of processing that. Yeah. Now, is there a difference between the flow when it comes to games and being immersive versus actually addictive games? And is there even a such thing as an addictive game? And based on like the rewards that you can get or loot or things like that, that keep you coming back to keep playing. Yeah. What's the difference? That's a great there? question. Um, so I have a I have a YouTube channel where I put out videos every week about the psychology of games, and the one I did most recently was about video gaming disorder. So I go on a fifteen minute rant. I, I'll spare you from that, but if you're interested in learning more, <laughs> I do I do have a long video. And what is it called? Um, oh, it's called Psychgeist. So like okay, P S Y C H G E I S T Psychgeist. Um, yep. So games are designed to be engaging. The reward system, the achievement system, loot boxes, all of that stuff is designed to keep you engaged. And that's what makes it a good game. Now, the line between gaming addiction and gaming disorder, first of all, it is something formally recognized by the World Health Organization, but not the American Psychiatric Association, which is the first important distinction to make. The American Psychiatric Association has it listed in the back of their diagnostic manual as something that requires more research. Like, they're not... Confident that in and of itself, it should stand alone as a unique disorder. Now, scholars in the field are very much of that position that there's not enough research to say there's something uniquely, quote unquote, addicting about games. Because if we look at the DSM as it stands now, the diagnostic manual, there's only one behavioral addiction in there, and that's gambling addiction. So gaming addiction would beat out sex addiction or work addiction, or these other things that have decades of research and established treatment programs. So for us, that seems a bit strange and perhaps driven by this fear, kind of this moral panic in and around games. So there's no evidence to suggest there's something unique about games, first of all. Now, some people play games in a problematic way. That is, without question, for some people, games can lead to problems. So if playing games... Not games, not, I take that back. Not playing games can lead to problems. From the outside in, it looks like games are the source of the problem. Right. But what seems much more likely is that games have become a maladaptive coping strategy for something else underlying, mm. whether it be depression or anxiety or, I don't know, environmental stress from a global pandemic. You know, it could right. be a lot of things. But there's nothing to suggest that games themselves are the, are the source of the issue. But if you are concerned about someone's game playing, if they're experiencing detrimental consequences in all areas of their lives, physical, social, occupational, for an extended period of time, it would be worth consulting a mental health professional. But keeping in mind that what you might actually be looking to treat is something like depression or anxiety or stress, stress management or something like that. Right. But the easiest thing to see is the amount of time yeah. that we're playing games. And from the outside in, again, it's easy yeah. to see that. And, and as frustrated parents, I understand <laughs> yeah. wanting to just be like, it's the games. Right. Um, but the research doesn't support that. Yeah. But that is helpful to know so we can be aware of other things that may be going on beneath the right. surface. And this may be how it's manifesting 
or how exactly. it's being exactly. <laughs> communicated it's a perfect to way us. Of putting it. Yes. Yes. And, and that's the thing. And, and it is a very important distinction because there are these gaming addiction centers that you see popping up, but they're very much based on substance abuse. So if you say you're addicted to games, I'm taking you to one of these places. The first thing they do is they take the games away. Well, the games might be their coping strategy. Yeah. And now you've taken away that tool yeah. um, and they're not treating what's underlying their cause. They're treating the games as the source of the problem. And right. that could be, that could be a problem. Yeah. And why a lot of parents, I think, wouldn't fully understand why their kid doesn't seem to be getting better once the games are gone. Right. In right. fact, a lot of times I think they get worse. Right. And right. Lash out more because now. Because that was their strategy that. to yeah. feel less lonely or less anxious or, or whatever it might be. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want it to be clear that some people do use games in problematic ways, but there yeah. really is. But like, that's like everything. Exactly. Like the fact that they want to put it in there before sex addiction to me is ridiculous because sex addiction yeah. has clinically established programs to treat it. And that's not even in the DSM. And there's a lot of speculation that the World Health Organization was maybe like pressured into, into like filing it in really quick right. into their diagnostic manual um, you, because there really you, is a lack. Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. Do you Go ahead. think that that is because of what a lot of the video games look like? Like the artwork and even like really scantily clad women and like stuff like mm -hmm. that. Like it's almost a way to present almost pornographic images to well, young guys. Well, yeah. So that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother topic. You, you, we, you can't, I mean, I did a study at the University of Munster where we looked at, there's a theory called cultivation theory which is the idea that when you are consuming media, you are cultivating the ideas and the ideals being portrayed to you and integrating it into who you are. And the hypothesis was by playing these kinds of games with scantily clad women um, and women as damsels in distress, that you were cultivating sexist and misogynistic ideas about women and the roles that women play. And that perhaps is feeding into this toxic gamer culture and there's a way that women are harassed. Um, turns out zero evidence for that. So that goes back to what I'm saying about the way that media impacts you is very minimal because on the, on the surface, again, I can see how someone would think that that might be the case, but scientifically it is not supported. It's really important for parents to be aware of what their child is consuming. It's another reason to look over their shoulder. I mean, I've seen, you know, back when people went into stores <laughs> um, where you go into game stores and, and parents just, you see them buying um, M rated games, M for mature rated games for their young children. And it can either be violent content or it could be at scantily clad women, it could be sexualized content. They're not even looking at it. And they're just buying it because their child said they wanted it. Well, if you want to be aware of the content your child is consuming, you need to first look at that, uh, what the ratings are, but also look over their shoulder. Because I can tell you, I wouldn't want my eight-year-old son playing, what is that volleyball game, Dead or Alive, with a girl, you know, where the girls are in like bikinis and they have abnormal proportions. I would not want my eight-year-old playing that game. Yeah. There is a model, uh, I developed a model talking about when I was proposing that cultivation theory might be a thing, but part of it is the industry is male dominated, right? There's not too many female protagonists. And over time it has become 
kind of like a, an opportunity to create fantastical, unrealistic female characters that, that yeah, are exciting for the people who are developing. <laughs> oh, mm -hmm. yeah, 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 exactly. Oh, I, I also very much like watching other people play games. A lot of people are, are like weirded out by Twitch. And like, Why would you watch other people play games? It's like sometimes it's just really entertaining to watch other people play. So from all of research and experience that you've done over the years, can you kind of give a overall snapshot of what is the most valuable part of playing games? Oh, that's hard. The most <laughs> valuable. I think for me, what was the most surprising perhaps to find in terms of positive impact of game playing was the amount of unintentional learning that happens when you play games. Oh, so yeah. games that aren't designed, I mean, we might be of a similar generation. When I was younger, I remember Math Blaster, right? Yes. Yes. Yep. Okay. That's equations on a screen. That's not fun. Totally. Nobody likes that. Um, <laughs> but games today, if you look at games like Civilization, okay, that's not created to be uh, an educational game, but you're learning about historical world leaders or you're learning about the wonders of the world. Um, you know, World of Warcraft, again, it's always a great example because it's such a diverse game. You're learning about time management and leadership skills and resource management, and you are acquiring all these skills and all these, all this knowledge unintentionally because the game wasn't developed to teach you these things. And it's really fascinating to me how much really, how much really you can learn from games. But you know, yeah. back when books came out, there was, there was panic about that too, or crossword puzzles. There was moral panic that women might become literate because they're staying at home doing crossword puzzles. So this is just like the latest thing in a long line of we should be afraid, but there's a lot of good. There's a lot of good. They're not perfect, yeah. but there's a lot of good yeah. in there. Totally. As you think through all of your gaming life and your psychology life and all of that, what kind of words of encouragement would you offer to, to parents, to spouses, to kids, to gamers, and encourage them that they're doing a good thing and that they're okay? Yes. Um, to parents, um, it's okay that your child wants to play a little more Minecraft these days. Um, because it is their last opportunity to be engaging with their, with their peer group, which is so important right now, um, for parents and spouses, <laughs> you know, my husband used to play a mobile game and I can't remember the life of me, what it was called, but he was playing it all the time. And I remember somebody asked me like, what do you do when your spouse plays a lot of mobile games and you can't get them off? I'm like, you tell me, I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but I think that showing interest in the activity as a parent to a child or as a spouse to another spouse can really go a long way in helping to understand the role that games are playing in our lives. So I think a lot of people see it as like frivolous play that's not meaningful and it's not important and really can be like, this is the only way I can connect with the people who I used to live to live by in another state. Or when I play this game, I feel empowered because I'm able to accomplish really complex um, things. And I think just by showing a little bit of interest, you'll learn a whole lot about the good that there is in this community. Again, it's not perfect. 
there's toxicity and there's harassment and there's, there's definitely could be overuse and you have to think about things like eye strain and sedentary lifestyle and it shouldn't be everything that you do, but you know, you can get an esports scholarship now. There's billions of dollars in the video game industry. There's, there's plenty of jobs in that industry um, for kids when they grow up. So it's not all doom and gloom. Yeah. Which is good. Yes. Um, I have asked you almost all the questions that are on uh -huh. my list. <laughs> you just like answered them so well. Oh, good. And so efficiently. <laughs> I'm like, wow, this is great. We're even under an hour or <laughs> still. Oh, good. So now I'm like, well, what else can I ask you? What else am I interested about? I don't um, know. <laughs> ask me anything. But I am really actually curious. Is there a difference between video games and board games or physical games? Mm -hmm. And how does that translate into life? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I haven't, I haven't extensively studied board games, but I did have a colleague when I was doing my PhD who did, did a comparison between like role playing in board games and role playing in video games. As far as I know, there's not really any significant differences. Obviously video games were very much inspired by board games and board games are also great tools for teaching strategy and, and this, all these unintentional learning outcomes that we were talking about in relation to video games. I think video games in some ways, especially now for the younger generation are more engaging because it's on a screen and everybody loves screens and they just want to look at them and, and <laughs> that sort of thing. But if you're a parent concerned, that your child is looking at too much screens maybe now that we're doing online learning as well. Pivoting to board games might be a really great bridge um, of, of the gap between, okay, maybe let's get off of the computer for a little bit and play, you know, Settlers of Catan or whatever your jam is for, yeah. for board game night. Um, because again, it's playful, it's collaborative, it's competitive, it can have all the same benefits. And maybe if you're a parent or a spouse who's not super into video games, maybe board games might be something you can all do together um, and it would still kind of tick the same boxes. Because parents a lot of times say, I want to take my child's interest and pivot it into something in the quote unquote real world, which I hate that phrase, whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and board games is a great way to do that. Yeah. Do you think that there is a generational difference between how we view gaming? Yes. And yeah. <laughs> Leading question, maybe. Yes. Because <laughs> I've, I've, I've seen that with like our parents mm -hmm. not fully understanding to the same degree that we do. But I can even see that for the generation that's under me too coming up. And how they see video games than even I do. Yeah, that's true. And they're growing up with ones that are different than I did. Well, yes, they have Breath of the Wild. We do, do you remember <laughs> originals OG Zelda? Come on. Eight bit. Yeah. 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 But they even have more, I feel like they have more in the world of community gaming too. Yes, for sure. For so sure. We had to wait a long time gaming. for online communities. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so where do you yeah. see like the generational differences in in the gaming world? Yeah, I think I I you know, our generation I think is is raising children that are more open to gaming, I would say, as a leisure activity. I mean, I had a game console from a very young age. Um, my parents never ever played with me. And I know that, you know, if we played for too many hours, it'd be like 
get off. And, but if I played for the same amount of hours playing risk, you know, they would never tell me to stop. So there's like a difference in understanding, um, of, of the role and what games are really as a form of entertainment. I think that games are becoming more accepted as more generations come up, but you know, the next moral panic is just around the corner. Don't you worry. As soon as VR and AR become affordable for everyone, the blame is going to get gonna get shifted there so right. i mean it, the cycle continues right whole nother ball game whole other yep. world of stuff to well, see exactly scared of. whole nother ball game see see it's the moral <laughs> panic and it's and it's natural it's natural yeah. to have that reaction towards the unknown the difference that we have here with games is that okay we've been studying them now for half a century yeah. We know now really well what they can and what they cannot do. So the moral panic sustaining now is a bit silly. Um, it was understandable at the beginning to have these fears because it was the fear of the unknown. Yeah. And so what would you say to somebody then who still feels so strongly about it being a moral issue and the mm-hmm. panic that comes with that and feeling like I need to believe what my gut is telling me and I don't care what other people are saying. This is what I, I still think it's really bad. What do we do with that? How do we be in relationship with people like that who are saying things very differently? I would send them to my YouTube channel because I also have a video on moral panic, which I think is my most watched video for that exact reason. Um, But secondly, um, you know your family best. I'm not going to tell you how to raise your family. I'm not going to tell you if your child should have video games or not. I, I will tell you what the research says in terms of its uses and effects. Mm-hmm. Um, you can raise a perfectly wonderful human who's never played a video game. I have no doubt. Um, but I will also say in this world, they will be exposed to that technology at some point. Mm-hmm. So having a base understanding of what they are, what they can and cannot do, what the content is like would be advantageous as a parent, regardless of whether you have it in your house or not. Because even if you don't have it in your house, they're going to have it in somebody else's house or they're going to see it related to in pop culture. And it, and it's really just part of the 21st century common culture. So understanding at least a little bit, I think as a parent will give you some peace of mind, whether or not you decide to let your children play or not, that's totally up to you. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Um, so as we bring this official part to a close, do you have any final words of wisdom to offer the parents, but even more so, I think, the single people who are playing their games and they want to find connection, but they want to know that they're okay yeah, what they're doing? Yeah. Games are fun. I mean, when did fun not become an important thing to talk about? Like games are fun. They're great. Mm-hmm. And, and they're a great way to socialize. They're a great way to open conversation. They become a topic of conversation. I've met some lifelong friends who I've never met in real life, uh, through online games who I would consider my dearest, dearest friends. Of course, consider things like stranger danger and, and harassment and inappropriate content and all that stuff. If you are the parent of a, of a young, of a min- minor, not even younger children, it's important for teenagers too. Um, but you're going to be okay. When we look at all the research, we've done a lot of it. It's, it's, it's more bad than good. And at the very least neutral. So you're going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Rachel. I really appreciate 
the work that you put into learning about this and joining your passion with the research and showing us that the world in this regard does not have to be a scary place. <laughs> and it can be something that we can love. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm always happy. I'm always happy to spread the good word. Being a grown woman who enjoys playing video games, has a husband who is active in his online gaming community, and has children who also love video games, this conversation was so validating for me. Whether we want to or not, we all make assumptions about things we don't fully understand, or we allow our biases to dictate the information we receive. This can be harmful in a lot of ways. I really appreciated how Rachel brought to light the fact that there is no evidence for video games damaging people's brains or causing them to become more volatile. The gamer stereotype of a nerdy guy hunched over a computer in his parents' basement is not only a disservice to the vast diversity of people who enjoy esports, but it's also not the experience of most gamers today and can be seen as derogatory. Lots of food for thought. I hope you paused what you were doing or tilted your head at what might have been said, and I'm so glad you stuck with it. Let's keep on sitting with the discomfort and allow it to move us. If you'd like to hear more of what Rachel has to say on this topic, please check out her work. You can visit the show notes to find a link to her website, social media, and YouTube channel. If you have any questions or comments on this episode, need further clarification on anything you've heard, or would like more information on how to support us, please don't hesitate to contact us at activelistening.life at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter. Reviews on iTunes are always welcome. And consider buying us a coffee. You can go to our website for that. Thanks for listening and please join us for more uncomfortable conversations.